0: We are your people, and so we pray that by your spirit you would help us to see your son, our Savior, help us to rejoice in him and to know him, help us to see the way that he has given himself as a sacrifice for us, that we may be brought to you in righteousness and in his holiness. Give us your Holy Spirit, O oh Lord, that it may not dwell in our, in our ears only, but also sink into our hearts, that we may put it into action as you work in us. Help us, O oh Lord, to walk with you in faithfulness and in joy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You're now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 22, beginning to read again in verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together this afternoon. Well, commenting on, on this passage on Peter's famous fall, J.C. Ryle wrote these words. He said, the best and highest saint is a poor, weak creature even at his best times. Whether he knows it or not, he carries with him an almost boundless capacity for wickedness. However fair and decent, his outward conduct may seem, there is no enormity of sin into which he may not run if he does not watch and pray, and if the grace of God does not hold him up. I don't doubt for a moment that most of us in this room would agree with what the good bishop has to say in those words. We freely admit uh, here at Redeemer that Uh, that sin is a serious problem even for sanctified Christians. We are not perfectionists in this congregation. We agree that temptation is real. We agree that the devil is still out there prowling like a lion. And when scandals happen, even when scandals happen in the church, we realize that it's part of the nature of living in a fallen world. We realize that even our uh, spiritual heroes are sinful people. So at least in a sense, at least as a a theological proposition, we would agree that the best saint carries an almost boundless capacity for wickedness. We would agree with those words, but I wonder to what extent we actually believe that they might be true about ourselves. The problem with that is that I know most of you fairly well. And I know you well enough to know that you're all pretty well put together. And I've been around put-together people long enough to know that put-together people tend to imagine that their lives will remain put together quite nicely. We tend to imagine that, yes, sinful though we may be, our sins will remain manageable. Our sins will remain quiet. Our sins will remain largely unobtrusive. And we tell ourselves that egregious sins, scandalous sins, well, they belong to somebody else. I have no hard data. I don't know of any studies that have been done, but I would imagine that most Christians who end up committing adultery don't go into marriage planning to uh, turn into unfaithfulness. Most Christians who are violent in the home never imagine that they would be the one to strike their children. Most Christians who Silently, secretly struggle with addictions, never expected that it was going to be their drinking that would get out of hand. And we could multiply examples. Ways that we tell ourselves that flagrant sin always seems very far away until it isn't, until it shows up in our hands or in our homes or in our church. Most often, I think, we underestimate our capacity for wickedness, just like Peter did. Just several hours before this event, Peter bristled at the idea that he could possibly deny his Savior. And John Calvin tells us that Peter is here in the Gospels as a mirror of our own weakness. He's a testimony that if a Peter could fall into egregious sin, well, then so could you. He's a mirror of our weakness, but he's also here as a window to God's grace. He's here as a testimony that if a Peter could be restored, Peter could be forgiven, then so can you. With God's help today, we're, we're going to see our weakness in Peter's sin, and we're going to see God's grace in Peter's repentance. Those are our two points. Our weakness in Peter's sin in God's grace, in Peter's repentance. We begin by seeing our weakness mirrored back to us. And the first thing we need to understand about Peter's sin and about our own sin is that our sin and Peter's has, uh, well, predictable beginnings. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, everything out of nothing, all in the span of six days, and all very good. But unlike creation, our sin doesn't appear ex nihilo, it has deep roots. And the deepest taproot that feeds our transgression is the sinful nature that we've inherited from our first parents. The scripture tells us that we are conceived in iniquity and in sin. The scripture tells us we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here's another theological proposition that we agree to here at Redeemer. We we understand that we're susceptible to sin in the first place because our hearts are bent in that direction. And even those indwelt by the Holy Spirit still have that remaining indwelling corruption. And we know this, and we, we understand this, and, and we know that our sin has predictable beginnings. But when we're dealing with specific sins, we can also get specific about the snares that leave us vulnerable to temptation. In Peter's case, he entered the courtyard of the high priest full of, <coughs> excuse me, full of spiritual presumption and completely devoid of prayer. You remember his words when Jesus told all the apostles that they would flee like sheep when the good shepherd is struck. Not me, he said. That that wouldn't happen to me. Even if they all fall away, I will never deny you, Peter said. He was strong. He imagined by the sheer force of his will he could overcome the temptations that would overtake all the rest of his brothers that he had walked together with Christ he presumed he was capable of remaining faithful even in the face of temptation he was full of presumption and together with the rest of the disciples in the garden with Christ his presumption led into prayerlessness Jesus told them all they were entering into a spiritual battlefield and they ought to dress like men ready for war. They ought to arm themselves. They ought to pray that they may not enter into temptation. And instead, they all slept in the face of temptation when they should have been guarding against it. They became like faithful watchmen. And the city is invaded while the watchmen sleep because they never really took the threat of invasion seriously. It's the way that sin often sneaks up on all of us. It's the Christian father who insists, rightly enough, that his children's Internet devices must have accountability and filtering software on them, while he insists, on the other hand, that he's beyond needing those sorts of things. It's the Christian mother who polices the language of her children, while she never gives a thought, never gives a prayer, to the biting sarcasm, to the complaining that she speaks against her husband. It's the young Christian woman who knows that she probably shouldn't date that attractive young man who doesn't follow the Lord, but he's a pretty nice guy. He's certainly more interesting than all the Christian bachelors that she knows, and after all, she's mature in her faith. She's been doing this for a while, and it's far more likely that she'll be a spiritual influence on him than that he'll be a spiritual influence on her, right? You've seen it happen, and you've watched the proverb be confirmed by experience that bad company corrupts good morals. See, often it happens for us as it did for Peter. And in our spiritual drowsiness, we take temptation lightly. We begin to imagine that if we do encounter temptation, we are the ones who will be strong enough to say no on our own. And so we do not seek the help of the Lord through prayer. We don't avoid the situations we know we ought to avoid. And we tell ourselves that other people may be tempted, but you know we're different. We're beyond all that. Well, Peter thought he was beyond all that. And so when he walked into the courtyard that night, he was ignorant, really, of just how vulnerable he was to temptation. In fact, you notice the way that Peter enters into the courtyard before he ever opens his mouth, before he ever says a word for or against Christ. You notice that the way that he enters into the courtyard already places one foot into the sin of disowning his Savior. You see the way that he he takes his seat right in the midst of the group who arrested Jesus. Maybe an hour before he's swinging swords in their direction and now he's warming himself by the fire that they have kindled. Perhaps Peter thought that the night was darker than it actually was. Maybe he thought that if he just kept silent he could operate in stealth mode, he would not be detected. We don't know how Peter expected to remain unnoticed. We only know that Peter entered this situation determined to mingle with the enemies of Christ without being recognized as one of Jesus' disciples. There's a spiritual disaster waiting to happen, as it always is a spiritual disaster waiting to happen when we tell ourselves that we can do that in the world. I know, of course, we we prayed for Kuwait this week. We pray for the persecuted church every week. And there are places in the world today, there have always been places in the world where it is physically dangerous to let other people know that you're a follower of Jesus. And that's why every week we pray for those who have to live quietly and worship secretly. But we do not live in those places. And at this moment, at least, Peter didn't either. No, where we live, Professing Jesus doesn't lead to death. Most likely, we might get strange looks from our neighbors because they think that we're backward. Maybe worse, we'll be canceled online. We'll be passed over for a job. We'll be rejected for a promotion. We'll face some sort of societal pressure, something at work that, that doesn't go our way. Not to say that those aren't real repercussions, but, but they're not the things that we pray for. For our brothers and sisters around the world, and nevertheless, Peter's approach sometimes seeps into our circumstances. And we give in to the temptation to be silent for Christ when we ought to speak up. We neglect to witness for Jesus Christ because of social pressures. We sometimes go along with the crowd. We take part in their iniquity because we don't want to be the ones who speak out against it. It was the approach of Peter, slip in quietly, play it cool, hope nobody notices that you're one of his. And in Peter's situation, it led to a sin that is so simple in a sense and and so well known that it speaks for itself. Three times he explicitly denied any conceivable connection between him and the Savior of the world. The first denial was spoken to a servant girl who saw his face in the light of the fire. You need to know that by all accounts, this uh, this woman or, or this young woman was the most harmless person that Peter encountered that entire day. She was a slave, she was a child, and she was a she. That meant that there were three cultural strikes against her public witness of who Peter might be. Even if she knew that Peter was a follower of Jesus Nobody would listen to her. She couldn't, she couldn't speak it anywhere that would have anything uh, to do with Peter that could cause any harm to come to him. Other than fear of being known, there is no legitimate reason that Peter should have denied Christ to a slave girl. Yet woman, he says, I do not know him. In the second denial, Peter really disowned the church that Christ came to save. The second question is, Hear whether Peter was one of them. That is one of these people that are now aligning themselves as followers of Jesus, this, uh, this different group that's growing up inside of mainline Judaism. And already there are beginning to be divisions already in some of the synagogues. We read from John chapter 9, some of the synagogues are beginning to excommunicate people who claim that Jesus might be the Christ and they wanted to follow him. So there are divisions and there are repercussions and already the connection with Christ's people might have consequences for Peter. But Jesus has already drawn the lines of division decisively. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, then take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, you ought to be willing to be known as a disciple of Christ no matter what it might cost you. And so Peter is faced with a choice. He can deny himself or he can deny Christ's people. And so man, he says, I am not one of them. The last denial is the most serious of all of them. Verse 59 says that there was a man who insisted, telling us that this claim is is almost rising to the level of an accusation. And again, it's in John's Gospel that we get that important detail that the man who was saying these things actually was a relative of Malchus, the man whose ear Peter had chopped off in the garden, and now he's looking at him, and now Peter's potential discipleship is personal. Now it's, it's dangerous. Now it's an opportunity to seek revenge. And he points to the evidence of Peter's uneducated accent. He says he must be one of those Galileans who travels around with Jesus. And if that charge stuck, Peter would be in a pretty bad way. So he goes for broke. He claims absolute ignorance. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't underestimate the severity of Peter's sin in the courtyard. Often we we compare Peter's sin to the sin of Judas, and, and that's a pretty good thing to do, because one man betrayed the Lord, and the other one denied him, but at the end it was really the same, that, that both of them disowned the Lord whenever faithfulness became inconvenient. And That is exactly what Christ told his disciples they must never do. Luke chapter 9, verse 26, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and his holy angels. It was a serious sin. It was a sin, as they all are, a sin of eternal consequences. A public repudiation of the Savior of the world. It was a reckless, spineless grasp at self preservation It was the ancient equivalent of the phenomenon we're seeing everywhere nowadays as hashtag deconstructing. And all over social media, millennials and Gen Zers are walking away from the Christian faith they were raised in. It's become a sort of airing of grievances against the Christian faith. A sort of public testimony, a kind of uh, anti-Christian coming out ceremony, and that's what Peter was doing. He spent three years in the company of Jesus, three years learning and watching, three years seeing his miracles. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law when she was sick with a fever. He spent three years walking with Jesus and learning at the feet of the Savior. He learned how to pray. He professed his faith that Jesus was the one the whole world had been waiting for. And now in a moment he's trying to throw it all away. I don't know him, he says. I'm not one of them, he says. I don't even know what you're talking about. I've never heard of that man before. Don't put me in any kind of connection with that Jesus. And it makes you wonder how it ever got so bad. How an apostle of Jesus could make such demonic denials of the Savior, but actually we know how it happened. It happened for Peter the same way it happens for you. That root, if you're bent towards sin, is underestimated. Slowly, through the evidence of your put-together life, you presume that you have strength sufficient to keep walking faithfully with Jesus. Before you know it, you've given up watching and praying against temptation like you ought to. You, You give up trusting in God's strength instead of your own. And then one day, temptation catches you with your guard down presented with the perfect opportunity to deny your Lord to save yourself. You might not do it with words the way that Peter did it. You might do it with a stolen glance, something you know you ought not to be looking at, or a secret visit to someone you know you ought not to be seeing. You might do it with angry words, or with a slap, or with some other egregious sin that you thought was beneath you. Peter here is a mirror of our weakness. He's a reminder not to underestimate the capacity of our wickedness. He's also here so that we would not ignore God's capacity for forgiveness or for restoration. And so if we see our wickedness in Peter's sin, we also see God's grace in Peter's repentance. And Peter's repentance began, as all of our repentance always does, with Jesus taking the initiative. Actually, it's a detail that only Luke includes in all of the Gospels. Picking up in the second half of verse 60, Luke writes, And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Just a little thing. Actually, Luke does something different than all the other gospel writers. Luke, in his uh, typical approach to to taking all of his things and all the details of the account and compressing them into some orderly account that you can follow and read easily, he has put all of the denial here together in one spot, whereas most of the other uh, gospel writers either stretch it out or they put it in between Jesus' trial and his receiving beatings at the hand of wicked men. But Luke puts it here so we can follow it. But all that means, in other words, that in Luke chapter 22, verse 61, when Jesus stops to look at Peter, Jesus already has his hands full. This is happening simultaneously with everything that is going on in the high priest's house. The, uh, Jesus is, is about to make atonement for the sin of the world. Jesus is probably already engaged in making his defense against Caiaphas and Annas and the stack of false witnesses they've gathered against him. Jesus is being shuffled from one place To another place, Jesus is receiving strikes and beatings and mocking from the guard of the high priest. And yet at the moment of Peter's free fall into sin, Jesus' mind and Jesus' heart are on his apostle. In fact, you notice that it's not the rooster that wakes Peter up from the stupor of his sin. It's the look of Christ. The rooster crows and and Peter is still oblivious. He's still inebriated with his sin until Christ looks and turns. And in his turning, he turns Peter to himself. Luke says that when Christ looked at Peter, then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. It was a look of compassion from the Savior. In fact, it was the same kind of compassionate look or approach that Jesus gave to Judas in the garden. Because when Judas came out of the darkness with all of the captors, Jesus asked him a question to slow him down long enough to make him consider the seriousness of what he was doing. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Stop, think, recognize, he's saying. It's his compassion for his people. It's the same compassion that he has for you. Because by his word and by his spirit Christ often looks upon his people. He hears our sinful words. He watches our sinful actions. And while we are still in the stupor of our iniquity he turns his face to us and he wakes us up to the reality of our sin. I wonder if you've ever considered how often you would have fallen headlong into Christ-denying sin like Peter if the Lord had not stopped you and pulled you back from the edge. The world wants to chalk it up to having a conscience. Parents want to take credit for their their good training of their children, and pastors want to think that it has something to do with whatever last wonderful sermon they preach, that, that people are aware of their sin, but actually that's not how it happens. Now, when a sinner is awakened to the seriousness of their sin, it always comes from the same source. Christ has turned his face toward us. He looks upon us in compassion and in pity and in faithful watch care. He turns his face to us and, in turning, turns us to himself. And likely we're never going to know until we stand face to face, until All the mysteries of our existence are answered by being made as he is. We'll never know how often we stood on the precipice of our soul's destruction and the compassion of Christ held us back and brought us to repentance. It was the compassion that Christ had for Peter. To give him a look that would stop him in his tracks, a look to make him remember the seriousness of what he was doing. It looked powerful enough to make him weep bitter tears to know that Christ was not surprised by his weakness, even if Peter was surprised by his weakness. Jesus already knew. He already foretold. He already expected that without prayerfully and humbly clinging to the strength of Jesus, Peter was going to wander off like a sheep following its own nose into danger. And he knows the same about you. That's why by his word and by his spirit he warns you as he did Peter. Stay awake. Be watchful. Pray that you do not enter into temptation. But if Peter remembered Jesus' word of warning, surely he remembered Jesus' words of comfort as well. That's the rest of the story for Peter. Not just that That before the rooster crowed, he would deny the Lord three times, but after he turned, he was to uh, turn and strengthen his brothers. And so even in his sin, there is the promise of repentance, there is the hope of restoration. In preparation for our study together in this passage this week, I read through Peter's letters in the New Testament. I read through some of his sermons in the book of Acts, and it's amazing to see the difference between the Peter we find here in Luke 22 and the Peter who wrote those epistles that we're reading through together. It's amazing to see what a change happens after the Lord calls him back and confirms his love for him and, and asks Peter to confirm his love for the Savior. It's interesting then in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 10, this restored apostle gives us the same words that Christ gave to him, a word of warning and a word of comfort. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 10. Peter writes this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your feet. Faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And if we were to ask Peter, how do you know that's true? (laughs) How do you know that God is able to restore and confirm and strengthen and establish me after I've fallen into the kind of sin that I don't even want to admit to anybody else around me that I've fallen into? How do you know God is able to do that? He would have pointed to his own life. He would have shown us God's work in him as an example. I began this this sermon by telling you that I know you well enough to know that most of you are pretty well put together. Actually, many of you I know better than that. I know many of you well enough to know that you're not so put together as you may seem on the outside. It's the blessing of ministry for several years in the same place that I've gotten to see you and I've gotten to know you. And I've gotten to watch most of you grow in the faith and I've gotten to see some of you fall into sin. I've also gotten to see the Lord work in you and restore you the way that he restored Peter into humility, into usefulness in his kingdom. That's the work work that the Lord does over and over again for the long haul with his people. He shows them their sin in ways that they never imagined they could possibly have sinned. And he does it to bring them into greater humility, into deeper faithfulness to the Lord, into more usefulness in his kingdom. It's the work that I've seen the Lord do in many of you, and it's the work that I'm still watching him do in some others of you. In other words, this account of Peter, no matter when we read it, it always hits us all in different places. And there are some among us who are standing firm and do not yet know how easily they can fall. And this word is a warning to you. There are others who have been restored by the gracious hand of God and this is a reminder of God's grace to you there are others just waking up just weeping fresh tears of repentance and this is a word of comfort to you wherever you are let this word take root in your souls if Peter could fall then so can you but if Peter could be restored then so will you There is no sin in God's people stronger than their Savior. And this is the work that God delights to do in his people. He restores fallen sinners to humility and to usefulness in the kingdom of God. And Peter is proof that Christ is able to do what we can't do for ourselves. To show us not only our sin but God's grace to make us stand faithfully with him. Let's join together in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you for Peter. We thank you for what we see in him. We thank you much more for what he shows us of you. O Lord, we pray that when we fall into temptation... And that you would deliver us from it. We pray that when we fall into sin, you would give us the grace of repentance. We pray that you would call us to greater humility, that you would work in us that which we can't work in ourselves. O oh Lord, we thank you for the strength of Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you for his righteousness imputed to us. And by the Holy Spirit, we thank you for the sanctifying work that you do in your people.